if you would open back up to Genesis chapter 17, that is where we are this morning as we continue this, um, this, this walkthrough, right, through this very large narrative that is um, the book of Genesis. Um, I had a, a couple of conversations before just catching up and reminiscing kind of on where we've been over the past few weeks, and man, it has been such a blast. It's been such a joy to go through um, this book um, and to go through it, I think, in a way that um, enables like continued continuity. Like As we understand this narrative as it's playing itself out, we're not um, breaking it all to pieces, right? To where it's kind of like, okay, I remember where we were last week, but I'm not in sure entirely how that connects with where we are this week. Um, hopefully we are tackling sections that are large enough in which we are able to um, maintain uh, this level of consistency that we desire as we are shaping and informing our understanding of the redemptive story, right? Um, we're talking about uh, like what we oftentimes refer to as biblical theology, right? How does the promise of God in Genesis 3 following the fall of man and sin's entrance, right, and the chaos that it creates in our world, how does that um, trace, how does that follow throughout the redemptive story? One of the things that we have done over the past um, few weeks is we've referenced our board here, which you can see, but there are a lot of details that you're probably not able to make out. Again, I would encourage you, maybe after the service today, check this out. Jacqueline um, Eves, her work here has been really incredible, and it's super helpful, if not for you, for me, which benefits you as well. So um, this is this is kind of what we've been doing. We've been tracing um, this redemptive story, this, this scarlet thread that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture, including what we are observing in uh, the book of Genesis. And over the past few weeks, we have paid special attention to um, the commitment of the Lord to the transformation of um, Abram. Right? Uh, the statement that we've made a number of times has been, has been this, that God is committed not only to work through Abram, but he's committed to work in Abram. Right, And so this right here is a representation. I'll change colors. Just to help you out a hair. I'm going to box it in, although, like, theologically, that's just wrong, okay? We're not, don't, don't connect, okay? I'm going, to, I'm going to box it, but know that this isn't what, like, happens. It's a continuation. But what we've observed through um, Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 on into 16 and now 17 is this progressive holiness that's being created in the life of Abram, right? That the Lord is committed to this work in Abram in which he, at the conclusion, of his life will look more like Jesus than he did in Genesis chapter 12. And that's the same thing that he does in our lives as well, right? That, that as you are uh, living life, right, and you are growing in grace and holiness, um, there is this, this transforming effect in which the Lord seeks to and, and serves the glory of his name as we go from way back here, right, to like image of Christ, which is out here, right? This is where we're, we're going. There's this progressive work, right? Do you remember? Last week we looked at, and I'm dodging, I'm like jumping obstacles this morning. This is fun. Um, last week we looked at how, like, as we go through uh, various portions of this narrative, there are high points, and then there are these downward spirals of sin, right? We see this in the life of Abram, for example, right? Instances in which he begins to, um, following this, this introduction to God, his great character and nature, lie about the relationship that he enjoys with his wife because he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to um, like take him out, like kill him, right? And so there's this high point in which, okay, we're introduced to God, we're growing in an understanding of who he is, 
followed by this systematic downward spiral of sin, in which the Lord responds most graciously in bringing Abram back out and bringing you and I back out. This is kind of how this works. Only, we don't stay up here, do we, right? But we, we spiral down again, to which the Lord responds most graciously, and he brings us out, to which we spiral down again. If we look at it and we think about it that way, then we begin to understand um, the patience of the Lord, right? In this really incredible and real way, right? He is, he is so patient. And he is so kind and he is so committed. And these are aspects of the Lord's nature and character that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. Everyone good? Everyone okay? Now, one reason that we go back and we, and we revisit and we retell these stories of where we have been is because it's super important to maintain continuity within the biblical narrative. Right, as, we, as we engage God in his word, in Genesis, we see a foundation that serves to shape the way that we understand purpose, right? like our purpose, right? and God's purposes, the problem of sin, and God's great provision. Right, we see the foundation for these things being laid in the book of Genesis. If we get Genesis wrong, if we misunderstand or if we misrepresent the book of Genesis, then there is a very high probability that we will misunderstand and misrepresent the rest of this redemptive story. Genesis is extremely important, and so I am so glad that all of you fine people are here today to go through this with us. Each week we are um, seeing the story expand. What is God's promise? Well, God's promise is to rescue his people and to do so through the seed of the woman at great personal cost to himself. How do we know that? Well, we observe Christ's sacrifice for sinners upon the cross, right? Sinless sacrifice taking the place of sinful, rebellious uh, creation, right? In order that what? That we might uh, experience citizenship within his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. Right? And, and comfort by his eternal presence. Last week we looked at Genesis 15 and 16, two chapters last week. A majority of our time spent in the first few verses. And the emphasis was placed on the consideration of our relationship with God as being dependent on God's commitment to this work of redemption for sinners. As we go back and we consider where we have been, in in verse 1 of our time, in chapter 15, we observed God teaching this people, right? The original audience reading for the first time the book of Genesis, preparing to enter into the land that has been promised to them. Three super helpful perspective-shaping truths about who he is. Let me remind you of those. Uh, if you take notes, which I always encourage, right? Notes, stellar. Take notes every, every week. Um, you can look back and you can see those. But if you uh, did not get these or you weren't here to take notes, here's where we were last week, right? That we observe in, in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, God's care uh, for his people, right? We said God cares for and he speaks to his people. Incredibly comforting, Incredibly, incredibly comforting. God cares for and speaks to his people. He protects his people. And finally, God serves as the ultimate reward for his people. That's where we were last week in verse 1. In verses 2 through 6, we observed God restating his commitment to the birth of a nation through Abram, a nation that Moses addresses through the writing of Genesis. In verses 7 through 20, God points towards a hardship awaiting his people. 
We didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that last week, but it is, it is really important, right, for shaping our understanding of God's sovereign knowledge. Some things that we are going to talk about and address in our time today from Genesis chapter um, 17. Right, he points towards the, the hardship awaiting his people and his commitment to be with them through difficulty. Right? Remember our, our roller coaster example, right? Like throughout the book of Genesis and really like everything, right? There are these like high points in which we're like, yes, like this is incredible, great news. Like we're in a really good place. Let's just close the book here and let's just kind of hang out. Only um, that's like not beneficial ultimately for us because we have more than that, right? We, we have more. We can't just close it and then move on. Or we're missing this tremendous portion of scripture that highlights in the most clear way possible God's steadfast love and his commitment to the judgment of evil. But we stopped a little bit, like for a moment, we paused at the top of the roller coaster, only then to look to chapter 16, in which we find this incredibly low, low point. Right, the, the word of the Lord had come to Abram in his fear and concern, assuring him of his commitment to his purpose to produce an heir within Abram's family. How would, how would Abram respond? How would his family respond? Well, they respond um, by, by welcoming sin. As they, as they devise their own plan to, to circumvent, right, to, to go around reliance on the Lord, choosing instead to take matters into their own hands, which we will address um, again uh, at another point this morning. The after effects are Abram's um, production of offspring with Hagar, his wife, Sarai's Egyptian servant. Let's just cut the rest of the story um, a little bit shorter. It doesn't work out, right? Like it doesn't work out. It does not, it does not go well. Um, Sarai becomes jealous, resulting in Hagar fleeing due to Sarai's harsh treatment of her. Hagar is visited by an angel who confirms that she is in fact pregnant and God promises to multiply her offspring in response to her return and continued submission to Sarai. Are we following the story? I'm laying it out here for you very, very shortly here, kind of, right? You're like, yeah, sure, really? Yet we hear and we observe in chapter 16 that there will be conflict between her offspring and others. Tensions between the offspring of flesh and the offspring of faith. Right? We see, these, we see this, this tension. We see this collision taking place. There is, coming out of chapter 16, obvious confusion from Abram concerning God's plan. Right? Con- confusion that the Lord will seek to bring clarification to as we come into um, Genesis chapter 17. And so our goal uh, this morning is really simple. And I think we might have these to put up. Um, Rain's going to follow along with me, and we're going to do our best to keep everybody on the same page here. Um, In Genesis 17, uh, a few really practical um, theological questions that I want us to address. Now, if you remember the way that we did this last week, we embraced first the theological, we unpacked it, and then we considered the practical. Okay, so so theologically, what are we observing, and how does this theological point inform the way that we are to then respond? Um, number one, how do the attributes of God shape the way that we live? This is the first question that we're going to ask from Genesis chapter 17. The second is this, how does God work? Right, how does God work, and how does um, this work shape a confidence 
that inspires obedience resulting from regeneration. Now, that's super intentional the way that we laid that out. So, like, I would really encourage you to, to, to write that down. iPhone it, right? Like, okay, let me get this, right? Because we're going to be really intentional in unpacking the order of these particular um, events. God works, right, shaping a confidence that inspires obedience resulting from regeneration. How does all this happen? Let's begin to answer a few of these questions. I hope that you're opened up to Genesis chapter 17 with me. We are going to begin um, with this question, how do the attributes of God shape the way that we live? That's a question that perhaps you have considered explicitly or implicitly in your own life before. Maybe you have actually articulated those words. All right. How does who uh, God is shape the way that I live my life? Maybe that's the way that you've, you've said that question before. If you haven't articulated it audibly, then I think that you have most certainly considered it right internally. As we, as we read through and, and embrace God's word, as we seek to grow in, in godliness and our deeper understanding of who he is, a natural question then is how does all of this shape the way that I'm to go about living my life? Let's look at verse 1. In verse 1, God presents a certain characteristic of himself. He says this, when, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, that's incredible enough. <laughs> right? Like we, we made the statement last week that we could stop here and we would be like, wow. Right? Think about what we observe in chapter 16. We see Abram's um, his questioning of God. Right? And his desire to, with his wife Sarai, circumvent. Right? Like go around God's way of, of working and willing. Right? We see sin in chapter 16, right? This downward, this downward spiral. And yet, in chapter 17, the Lord responds by, by coming to Abram again and speaking to him. And as he speaks to him, he, he begins unpacking yet again this, 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 this further understanding of who he is. He says, I am God Almighty. But I'm God Almighty. God identifies himself to Abram as what? Almighty, right? He he, he identifies himself in this very particular way, a, a defining trait, right, that's provided here by God that would be confirmed over and over and over again throughout both the Old and the New Testament, this is, a, this is a characteristic of the Lord that we articulate each week as we recite together the Apostles' Creed. Did you catch it? Or did, you, did, you, did you catch it in the beginning when we, when we recited the Apostles' Creed? We, we confess and affirm individually and as a body our belief in the Almighty Father God. Now, where does that come from, right? If you're not, if you're not altogether familiar with um, creeds and how they are to inform and shape the way that we think and feel, where do they come from? Well, they are ultimately like founded in and, 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 and communicating beautiful truths from God's word. We see in the Apostles' Creed a confession that echoes the very word of God here in Genesis chapter 17. As what? Think about, think about what's happening as we, as we participate in this. God's people, right, from God's word, convinced that our God, the one true God, unique and set apart, possesses the power to do anything that he desires. That's what we're saying. 
right? That's what we're saying as we, as we lean in and we, and we practice this each week as we find it rooted, founded in God's Word. Let me say that one more time. God's people from God's Word. As God's people, from God's word, we are convinced that our God, the one true God, for there is no other, unique and set apart, possesses the power to do anything that he desires. Now, we're going to continue unpacking this over the course of our time together this morning. However, there is a theological term that we use for this capacity. And it's this, it's it's omnipotence. And so one natural question then from this, because perhaps you're going, well, that's a really big word. Why don't we just say almighty? Like, right? why don't we just use that? Why do we need to use this specific theological language? What does it mean? I want us to observe three observations that assist you and I in knowing God in light of his almightiness, in light of his omnipotence. What do we learn about God? How can we know God more? Right And better in light of what he has to say about himself here in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 17. Write this down. Number one, God's omnipotence, right? his almightiness. Is that a word? Can we use that? Are you guys cool with that? His almightiness, right? His, his omnipotence means that his aim and intention... Right, that his mission will be fulfilled. We learn this about God as he says this very specific word about himself. We, we learn that his aim, his intention, his mission will indeed be fulfilled. One thing that this does is it sets God apart from you and I. Now, we might say, many of us would say in this room, right, if you're a Christian or maybe even if you're like somewhat like just apathetic to the whole thing, right? I'm not sure if there is a God, but if there is a God, then certainly like we would say these things about him, right? That, that he is different from you and I. So the question then is, what does this look like? Right, what does it look like for God to be, to be different from you and I in this, in this most particular way? Are you guys with me? Let's consider these, these points, right? Um, you, um, and this is practically, right? What does this look like? You and, and I might intend to go to a specific restaurant, right, after our, um, after our time meeting together today. Now you have in your mind right now, yes, this is where I'm going. Right, like I'm starving, um, and and my heart and mind have been set on this, and I'm going there. Only right after we conclude our time, everyone loads in the car, and you you drive to this desired destination. You get out of your car, you park, right? You unbuckle the kids, or you get everybody, meet everybody together, and you walk to the door. And there's a sign on the door, and what does it say? <laughs> it says um, it says like our our water is out, right? Our water's out, and as a result, like, your plans might have been to eat here, but you're not, right? Certainly that's not what the sign says, because that would be like a, <laughs> right, that'd be like a long sign, right? But that's the idea, right? You, you had this plan, you had this, this goal, this is the way that it was going to manifest itself, only now um, that's not what is, what is happening. Or um, for, for students, right, um, perhaps you have uh, like a midterm, right, in coming weeks and you, you leave your home, it's 30 degrees, it's freezing cold because again, Georgia, right? Um, and you're on your way to class and on your way to class you get a flat tire, right? Your plan was to, to go and to 
to take your midterm, only as you get a flat tire on your way to class, right? You, of course, pop the trunk and, like, there's no spare or it's flat or you don't have a jack. Like, that's the way it always works. Like, every time Maddie Marshall gets a flat tire, this is how it works, right? Um, and, and so um, while your plan was to, to go, to get up early, maybe even grab a cup of coffee on your way, go take your midterm because you have um, this, this circumstance, right, that, like, is placed in your life that's there, right? Um, your plans now are like not happening the way that you thought they were, right? Or you have a meeting, right? Work meeting. I've got a meeting. I've got to get to this meeting. Only on your way to your meeting, you hit traffic, right? You miss your meeting. Your boss is angry, like sanctification, right? Rock tumbler, right? Image, image of Christ production in your life. Maybe you um, intend to, to like get married and start a family by the time you're like 26, right? You want to um, graduate by the time you're 21 or retire by the time you are 50, only to have these intentions derailed by outside influences, influences that affect timing or influences that change your intentions altogether. Here's my point. Our intentions, our aims in life often come under the influence of circumstances. This is how it works with you and I, okay? But what we're saying in light of the omnipotence of God, his almightiness, is that this is not the way that it works for him. God has a, has a purpose, right? And his purpose is fulfilled even when it appears as though outside forces are having their way. Let's consider what we have observed through um, the book of Genesis up until this point in Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Right? God created this, this perfect community for intimacy and fellowship and human flourishing. Only insert problem. Rebellion. Okay, well now what is, what is God going to do? Does this just derail everything? Well, no, because we're still reading, right? Um, Genesis 4, the murder of Abel by Cain. Well, surely this will derail. We've got this dysfunction and chaos within the family unit commissioned by the Lord to extend his glory over the face of the earth. Genesis 16. As Abram and Sarai's efforts to produce an heir in accordance with their own interpretation of appropriate timing. Surely this will derail. In each case, however, we observe the almighty God of Genesis 17 continuing to work. Right, as the sure fulfillment of his aim and promise takes shape. Right? His, his mission is sure. Circumstances oftentimes dictate our expectations or lack thereof or failed, whatever that looks like. Only for God, we observe again and again that this is not the way that his, he functions. His omnipotence assures this. His almightiness assures this. His aim, his intention, his mission will be fulfilled. Daniel 4 verse 35, the most high does according to his will. Right? He does according to, to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And get this, this is like a soft pillow okay? that God's people lay our heads upon. That, that none can stay his hand. That none can stay his hand. God's almightiness, this trait that is presented as he, uh, as he connects himself with this identifying characteristic in Genesis 17 verse 1 means that his mission is sure. That's the first 
observation. The second is this, that, that God's omnipotence means that he does what he wants. Did you catch it? Right, that, that God does what he wants. Right, that he does what he desires. Now, I don't know uh, about you, but there are, uh, of course, times in which I'm able to reflect back on like my Christian life, right? And that has been a, a difficult pill to swallow, right? In the midst of, of, of tragedy and difficulty, right? And hurt and hardship and confusion and question. Things that we observe Abram and his family experiencing as we work our way through this particular portion of the book of Genesis. In Psalm 115 verse 3, the psalmist writes, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. John Piper uh, pastor for many years of, of Bethlehem and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and an author that we love to um, encourage you to be reading, says it like this. Ultimately, the only thing that determines what God will accomplish and what he won't is his own will. Or what, will what will he accomplish and what won't he? Well, it is all ultimately determined by the will of God, God's omnipotence means that he does whatever he wants, which is good. Like that is good, right? Because his ways are, are like are mightier than our ways, right? Like his mind is loftier than our minds. We oftentimes don't understand what is going on. And so we, we retreat, right? We fall back into the omnipotence of God, his almightiness, and this confidence that his plan and purposes will be fulfilled, that he will do whatever he desires, and that no one and nothing will derail that. God's omnipotence means that his aim and intention, his mission will be fulfilled. God's omnipotence means that he does whatever he wants, whatever he wills. Psalm 115 verse 3. Thirdly, God's omnipotence means that his power supersedes all other powers. Now what does that mean to supersede? Well, it means that it's above, right? Like it transcends. Right, the, the power, the almightiness, the omnipotence of a God ensures that his, that his power, that his will, purpose, intention, and that which is to be accomplished supersedes all other powers. In this earth, right, and under the earth, right, powers of, of flesh and evil and darkness, the Lord does as he desires, that his power is greater. This makes God really, really big, Right? Like we, when we embrace this particular characteristic and truth of God, it makes him big, right? And really it doesn't make him big. It just makes you and I acknowledge him as big. Like he is who he is, right? He is big. Whether you embrace that reality or not, that's who he is. And so as we say and, and wrap our arms around statements like these, we step back and we go, God is big, right? Like his, his power is greater. It's above, Right, it supersedes and it transcends. On Tuesday night, um, Courtney and I went to um, a, the screening of a film, and I can say it that way because we didn't go see like Elf, right? Like you can say it like really fancily because we went to go see a film that doesn't show everywhere. So it actually is a film and not even a, a movie. I went to a film this past week, 
right? Um, and it was, it was awesome. And the name of the film uh, was Free Solo, right? And, like, it's not a Star Wars thing. Right, so um, Star, Star Wars sequel solo alive again? No, that's not how it works. Um, but it is actually a documentary, right? And it was it was shot by a filmmaker named Jimmy Chin, and he is recording in this documentary the efforts of one Alex Honnold. Who, if you're familiar with Alex Honnold or not, um, I'll kind of like welcome you in. I'll introduce you to Alex. Like he is um, one of the most skilled rock climbers in the world. And in this film, we are, we are welcomed into this infatuation that Alex has with climbing a very particular rock in Yosemite National Park. Has anybody ever been to Yosemite before? Raise your hands. A few of you. Wow. I want to go. I want to check it out, like, um, especially after seeing this film. I wanted to before, but now I, I only want to even more. Well, maybe you're familiar with this particular rock. It is um, referred to as El Capitan or El Cap, right, um, is, is maybe what it is, is best known or recognized as. Anyway, regardless, Alex is um, what is referred to in climbing world as a free solo climber. Now, what does that mean? Well, for many of you, it means that he is insane. Okay, um, but what it actually means is that he attempts these these massive walls. And if you've been to Yosemite, then you perhaps you're, you're familiar with the scene, and maybe you've even observed it from a distance. And it's just this massive wall, this massive rock of gr- just granite, right? And and Alex, being a free solo climber, aspires in this film to climb this wall only to do so without the aid of rope or safety equipment. Right? He just like straps a belt <laughs> like around his waist with a chalk bag, right? And then he just climbs it. Like with like just like, okay, here we are, now up I go, right? And you're like, that is like totally um, it's totally insane. And you're right, like it's crazy, like it really is. And so in the film, we're observing Alex's efforts to train and prepare for this particular, this particular climb that takes place over a series of years. And um, I'll, 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 you'll see him like doing news shows right now, and so I'm not ruining anything by letting you know this. Like he, he attempts, and, but if you don't want to hear this, like close your ears or something, right? Like I'll, I'll give you that warning. I'm going to tell you what happens. All right, that's what's happening right now. So take a bathroom break if you need to. All right, one, two, three. Okay, here we go. So here's what happens. Um, Alex attempts this climb, and he accomplishes it. He climbs this, this route over the course of three hours and 56 minutes. Wow, right? Um, and in the final, like, iconic scene, you see Alex at the top, right? He's, he's at the top, and there's, of course, they're using, like, drones and things like that. And you see Alex, he gets up there, and people are just like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't believe he did it. Right? And he's, he's standing there on the edge, um, and he's just looking over. And then in this final scene, as he's looking over this, this mountain, this rock that he has just conquered, right? Um, there's this drone that's like there on him, right? And then it, it just begins to pan away, right? And it really slowly, like it's not, it's not a quick thing. It's just really, really slow. And, and you're kind of watching. You get what they're doing. You're like, they're, they're zooming out. And so I'm going to watch Alex until I can no longer see Alex anymore. And you just keep going and you keep going and keep going. You're like, okay, I still, yep, there he is. I still, I still see him, right? But eventually you get to this point in which you can't see Alex anymore, 
Right, that he's just he's swallowed by the size and the splendor and the magnitude of this rock. Right, that the skill that he displays in in climbing El Cap is dwarfed by the mass of this of this mountain. The camera gets to a certain point and the illustration falls apart because it just stops, right? You know, like cuts to the credits or something like that. But if the camera were to continue going out, what would happen? Well, you're, you're smart people, right? Like, like it would, you would just keep going and eventually, like even the rock would become small, right? Like even this massive wall that swallows Alex as he stands at the top and peers down upon his accomplishments would be small, right? And it would just, it would keep going and keep going and keep going until everything was just really, really small, right? Like imagine you could, um, you could just drone like on out into space and you just keep going and keep going and you can't see the wall and you can't see Yosemite anymore. And Alex is an afterthought, and you, you, the world begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller until you just keep going, and it's just a dot, and you can't even see that anymore. It's kind of like what's going on as God identifies Himself in Genesis seventeen, verse one. Right, this this almightiness, right, this this omnipotence, right, His His power. Right? His, his sovereignty, his will and mission and plan and purpose. Right? The, the camera zooms out and we're left with just nothingness. It's just black and like dots. And then from a biblical worldview, in light of what we're observing in Genesis chapter 17, we are brought into this deeper consideration that we worship an almighty God who oversees and rules over everything, displaying his power through creation and maintenance. Right? Everything is, is dwarfed by by him. God's power transcends human comprehension. You're sitting here and you're going, that, that just blows my mind. And I'm like, me too. Right? Like God's, God's power, it, 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 it transcends our ability to like cognitively process like what he in fact is, is doing and what is taking place. At the same time, there are these beautiful points in scripture, right, in which we are able to observe from biblical authors an attempt, right, under the inspiration of the Spirit to paint this picture of God's might. A great example is found in Job 26, amidst great difficulty and hardship. Job 26, beginning in verse 7, considering the, the, the character and nature of God and that which he is doing and accomplishing, the author writes, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Right? He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. 
He has inscribed a a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. Listen to what he says in verse 12. By his power, he stilled the sea. So he creates the sea, right? He, He separates the sea and then he stills it. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And so let's be be clear. I've got one more portion that I want to read here in the beginning. But you go, wow, you've spent about five minutes now unpacking this picture for us. And I'm here to tell you that I'm not able to do it justice. Right, that I, that I'm not able to, right? That we could we could meet here every day from here on into eternity and focus on this one defining characteristic of our Lord, and we would never exhaust it. And how small a whisper do we hear of Him? But the thunder of His power, who can understand? And you so you go. Wait a minute. From my seat right now, what you are saying, I, I, am, I can't even begin to understand. Me neither. Right? And that's the beauty. Right? Like, like that's the, the, the beauty of what um, is being communicated here. Right? Here in Genesis 17, our God who reveals himself to Abram chooses to emphasize his supremacy. He he chooses to to emphasize his magnitude, his power that is incomprehensible, while at the same time serving as a source of comfort. This is a a comfort that Abram and his bride, bride had lost sight of in Genesis chapter 16, right? Resulting in sin. This is the way it happens with you and I, right? Like, like we lose comfort. We, we, like, we trust in you, right? That was the, that was the chorus that we, that we sang just a few minutes ago. We trust in you. We trust in you. Only we know that trust is a struggle, right? Because we observe it here in the life of Abram and Sarai um, in this transition between chapter 16 and chapter 17. They have failed to trust, and as a result, sin, right? We go all the way back to the beginning, and we say this is Eve, uh, Eve's problem. This is Adam's problem. It's, it's a failure to trust that results in sin. God takes this opportunity in Genesis 17 verse 1 to call Abram and Sarai back into this profound truth. This is a comfort that we are in need of because historically we lose sight of it. And as in the case of Abram and Sarai, as in the case of Adam and his bride, we see sin. From Adam to the nation of Israel to you and I. God meets Abram following his sin with Hagar in Genesis 16 and affirms the very trait that Abram was in need of being reminded of in order to trust and lean into God's instruction in verse 1. Because after he identifies himself as almighty, he goes on to to call Abram into an act of obedience. Right? And so, isn't it interesting how the Lord begins with this, 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 the unpacking of this, this, this character trait 
right? And then, right, he calls Abram into this act of obedience, an act of obedience that flows from the work of God, the gracious work of God to produce regeneration, to make Abram alive. Remember, we talked about that last week, that Abram believed, right? He had trust, he had faith, he had confidence in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as what? Righteousness, right? And so we see that there is this, this work of the Lord to, to emphasize this particular trait and then this calling into obedience and action that naturally serves as a byproduct of regeneration. Listen to what he says in verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, if you're following along in Genesis 17. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. There's this emphasis on the nature of the Lord and then there is this call to, uh, to obedience, right? And there's this call to uh, obedience. So let's review briefly the three um, theological observations that we just unpacked and then let's get into the application um, for just a moment. Bless you. Number one, um, God's uh, omnipotence, his almightiness means that his aim, intention, that his mission will be fulfilled. Amen. What a source of incredible comfort for God's people that are now called and equipped to be living on mission. The mission of God here, right, in this, in this new time and place um, that, he is, that he is committed to. Uh, number two, God's omnipotence means that he does what he wants. And thirdly, God's omnipotence means um, that his power supersedes all other powers. And so let's consider the application for just a moment. I want us to um, address the first as a standalone and then to combine uh, points two and three or observation two and three. Okay, and you're like, I'm kind of lost. Hang with me. It'll make sense in just a moment. Uh, Number one. We ask this question as we seek to apply this theological truth. How does our understanding and embrace of God's sovereignty, right, his omnipotence, the sure fulfillment of his mission, right, of his intention translate into application for God's people? All of that is up here. How does our understanding and embrace of God's sovereignty, right, because that's what we're saying, we're embracing the sovereignty of the Lord, of his omnipotence, we're embracing his omnipotence, his power, all of the three aspects that we just um, concluded unpacking, the sure fulfillment of his mission translate into application for God's people. Here's another way that we can say that. What in the world do we do now? Right? Like that's the short of it. Let me just peel back the layers. What do we do? We embrace these things. We're on board with these things. Now how ought we to um, respond? Here's the reality. Because of our, um, because our intentions, consider your intentions, right? Like personally, your own personal intentions, goals, aspirations. Because our intentions are many times either misinformed, which I think that we could all step back and we could go, this is an intention or an aim or a mission that I have, that I'm living, that I'm pursuing, that is um, ill-informed, right, or misinformed. Um, because these, are, these things are true or often misinformed or subject to outside influence, it is biblically advisable to do two things. Because our intentions are oftentimes misinformed or subject to outside influence, it is biblically advisable to do two things. Number one, to hold loosely to our daily aim. To hold loosely to our daily aim. Right, perhaps to even adopt a certain outlook that even if it is not expressed audibly is considered internally and that outlook is 
again informed by God's word. Listen to what James writes in James chapter 4 beginning in verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? James James presents this, this beautiful illustration here. He says, For you are a mist, Right, that appears for uh, a, a little time and then vanishes. Our little boy Judah, I don't know if you noticed um, his hair as he came in this morning. Probably so, because he was right at your feet, undoubtedly, at some point. Right, we, we have this spray bottle, and we just we spray his hair. Like, and we comb it, we fix it, we lay it down, because, yeah, it gets crazy, right? And as we're in his room, we're spraying. It's like there's this, this mist, right? We're just spray bottle. It's not like super soaker like type thing, but just like a misty, right? Misty thing happening. And you spray it and it's like it's there for a second and then it just is vanished. James leverages this illustration, right? Um, to, to paint a picture of what our lives are, right? They appear for a little time and then they vanish. And so how we ought to, right, live as we hold loosely our daily aim is to, verse 15, say, if the Lord wills, then we, um, we will live and do this or do that. All right, what does that mean? Well, it means that we embrace this particular posture, that, that we have aim or mission or goal or aspirations for our lives, and yet, as we established in the beginning, so oftentimes those aims or missions or desires are, are um, easily influenced by the things of this world, right? Remember flat tire illustration? We've got that kind of in the back of our mind, or the water went out at the corner cafe, and nobody's getting spin art today. Sorry, right? That's kind of what happens. And so what ought we do? We should say, okay, well... Um, um, whatever the Lord wills, like because His 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 will is is perfect and um, His mission is clear, and He does as He pleases. All of the theological truths that we just unpacked, I ought to then align my aim and mission with the aim and mission and primary focus of the Lord. Right, do we do we do that? Like I would challenge you. Like take a um, I'm gonna I'm gonna use this church membership tonight. Don't forget, right? Um, yeah, you take it and you make a list and you go. Uh, okay, what is my what is my aim? What is my desire? What is my mission? Okay, well now, what does God's word have to say about about this? Right? Does this um, align with the word of the Lord, or is this something that is informed by my framework or my own um, selfish or ambitious desires? Right? Um, and we go, okay, it's not bad to have aspirations, but we do hold those things loosely, and when they disappear, our worlds do not fall apart. But we would do well to always seek to align um, our mission with the mission of the Lord. I remember, and I've been doing this over the past couple of weeks. Um, premarital counseling with with Hunter and Lydia, who are going to be married in just like no time now, right? Haley and David and I, we did the same thing. We sat down and we talked about the, 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 the idea of having mission in our marriages, right? That, that we would not embrace the cultural rhythms of what marriage ought to look like or have, have these, um, these, these fleshly aspirations or aims, but instead we would say, what does God's word say about his mission? His mission is sure, and therefore in our marriage we will seek to align our mission with his mission because what happens if we do that? Well, there's sure success, right? Because we've already established Right, that the, the, the Lord's mission is sure that He will accomplish His purpose. And so, in addition to holding loosely our aim or mission, we adopt the interest of the Lord as our primary focus. 
We align our plans with God's plans. And if we do that, then we won't be disappointed, although we will be uncomfortable. Okay, can we say that? Like, we won't be disappointed, but we will be uncomfortable. But in that uncomfortableness, we're drawn back into the comfort that Christ alone is capable of providing. And so while we're uncomfortable, we at the same time find ourselves in the most comfortable possible position. So that's strange how that kind of works out, isn't it? We, we seek to share the gospel in our daily lives, in our, in our places of work and play, in our relationships with our friends and neighbors and husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, professors, classmates, co-workers. The mission of God is to engage these spheres with the good news of what he has done to the glory of his name and for the good of sinners in Christ Jesus. As Christ's love is observed through the life of transformed people and heard through faithful proclamation, we see the world through the eyes of our sovereign king. Through our father God who works through the circumstances in this broken place to bring about his perfect will. Who at just the right time set his obedient son on the cross, right? To to observe, to to absorb all that his rebellious rebellious creation was due. This is God's mission, right? This is this is God's mission, and it will not be stopped. We're going to cut short a, a, a little bit today. I want to read one more thing to you. I want us to consider what this looks like from a New Testament perspective. Because we see it here, we observe it in, in these, these truths of Genesis 17. But um, what does it look like as this plays itself out in the, new, in the New Testament? In Acts chapter 5, following the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, right, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit, and the dispersion uh, and birth of the church, we see trouble both within the church as well as outside of the church, bringing persecution. Persecution flowing from jealousy as a number of the apostles are imprisoned by the religious leaders. This is where I want us to pick up and this is where I want to close our time in Acts chapter 5. Lean in. Story time. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of Acts chapter 5 to you beginning in verse 19. The comfort that comes with a trust in the omnipotence of the Lord. Beginning in verse 19. But during the night, the apostles are imprisoned at this point, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, so they're being freed. They're being set free from from prison and persecution here. Verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. This is what it looks like to align our lives with the mission of the Lord, right? Uh, And when they heard it, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. An act that has landed them in prison just previously the night before and so again what is their aim what is their interest well it's obviously not personal comfort right at least not in the things of this world at least not in the way that we oftentimes identify them in the world but it's something altogether different now when the high priest came and those were uh, and those who were with him they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and they reported. We found um, the prison locked. 
All the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. What a shock, right? Verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this, uh, what this would come to. And some came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. What name? Jesus' name. Amen. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Amen. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Right, this, is, this is what it looks like for the rhythms of our, our lives and our aim and our mission to be aligned and informed by God's aim and mission. Right? It's not like we, we sought personal comfort or we were freed and we desired not to come back here. And so we ran away and we hid to far distant lands, right? But it's no, we went to the temple and we faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so... Is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all of the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. Now we're getting to the point here. Although this, is, this has all been super helpful. We've seen what this looks like. Listen to the way that we close this out. He was killed, and all who followed him were uh, dispersed and came to nothing. Verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too, what? Perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will what? It will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Why? Well, because there's this alignment that has taken place, right? right that, that, God's, that God's mission is sure, right? That his, that his will is to be accomplished. We see reference to the crucifixion and resurrection of King Jesus in this message, right? From Gamaliel uh, before, before the council, Right? As we observe Christ's sacrifice for sinners upon the cross, we see, we see the commitment of the Lord and the degree to which he will go to accomplish his mission. 
His plan and his purpose that is laid out for the first time for you and I in Genesis chapter 3. Now we continue over the course of this narrative and what do we observe? We observe high points and we observe downward spiral of sin. We observe high points and we observe downward spiral of sin. At various points along the way we must confess that if we were reading this for the first time without the full counsel we would go. How in the world is God going to accomplish his plan? Only as we come to Genesis 17, verse 1, we are yet again called back and introduced to anew our Almighty God, right, who, who accomplishes His plan, right, who accomplishes His purpose. He is more committed to it than you or I am. Right, but we, we look to, as we sang earlier, and we trust in Him. And we look to and we trust in him. And we can do so because you and I, a regenerate people, have experienced the benefit of what it looks like to to have our eyes opened and our ears unstopped and to gaze upon the slain lamb and be made alive. The gospel's power to transform the hardest of hearts. And therefore, we align our wills. We seek to align our wills by the grace of the Lord and the power of the Spirit with the will of God. And we say, along with what is observable here at the conclusion of our reading in Acts chapter 5, that if this is of God, it will not be overthrown. That is our confidence. Right, that is our confidence, and as we come to the table this morning, we are reminded of this reality, that this bread that symbolizes the broken body of our Savior, of our rescue, of our Redeemer, is, is just that. Right? It, is a, it is a symbol of His broken body. That, that reminds us and points us to this, this fellowship that we will enjoy with Him eternally one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? Not with a slain king, but with a a very much alive king, ruling and reigning, who by the power of the Spirit dwells in his people that we might live in accordance with the mission of God and desired obedience to his instruction. Why? Well, because he is good and because he is indeed trustworthy.